0: Hello! And welcome to the Horse Loose in a Hospital edition of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Axios. I'm joined by Anna Shemansky, Hello. The woman with much expertise on matters emerging market. Those areas of expertise are going to be in high demand this week. I'm joined by Emily Peck of the Huffington Post. Hello. Um, who is going to talk about horses loose in hospitals. We are going to talk about the Fed, which, to no one's surprise, failed to raise rates this week. But to the market surprise kind of signaled that it wasn't going to raise rates at all anytime soon. That's a big deal. We are going to talk about pg e which is this massive utility company in California, which just declared, well, filed for bankruptcy, I should say even though it is solvent because climate change. So how on earth to unravel that is a fascinating question. And also we are going to talk about the U.S. Treasury and how it is throwing its weight around and the White House and the Justice Department. And are we entering a whole era of U.S. hegemony and power that likes of which the world has not seen for, oh, decades? It's, it's kind of an... Uh, Emily is shaking her head. I don't head. think so. Emily is saying that she doesn't think I, so. I don't think so. We are so. going that's to untease all of these things and we are going to talk about OFAC because we get to talk about OFAC and that's how nerdy we are. And we are going to talk about Venezuela because we love to talk okay. about Venezuela on this show. So if that's not enough for you, we have an entire Slate Plus segment on Facebook's newest and most powerful regulator, which is Apple. All of that is coming up on Slate Money.
1: and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com.
2: No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. Or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.
1: Okay. So, um,
0: Anna, the office of foreign assets control. OFAC. This is leading slate money this week yes. because it's so amazing. And this is going to be the best conversation about OFAC ever. Um, But I guess we should probably start by saying, what is OFAC? It's the Treasury, basically. And the Treasury Department is not just a finance ministry like any other finance ministry in the world. It's also the entity which looks after the entire dollarized world. Anything which is done in dollars, anything in the world, comes under the purview of Treasury. And what that means is... Basically, every company in the world that operates internationally comes under the purview of Treasury. And if Treasury decides to slap sanctions on you and say, you're not allowed to deal with that company, then that company essentially gets excommunicated from the entire global economy. Treasury can do this. No other finance ministry can do this. Treasury has an extraordinary amount of power. And the arm they use to do this is called OFAC.
3: When you say no other... Uh, finance ministry, you mean in the world?
0: In the world. Okay. So only, it's part, it's because the world runs on dollars, because global commerce runs on dollars, because every single global company needs a dollar bank account, um, the Treasury has that degree of control. So every bank in the world ultimately has to do what Treasury says. Every company in the world ultimately has to do what Treasury says, including Pedavesa, which is the state owned oil company in Venezuela. Now, The White House, uh, you know, John Bolton and all of these like super hawks in the White House are very aggressively cracking down on Venezuela. And as part of that crackdown, they have decided that they are going to essentially excommunicate PDVSA from the global economy. Um, If you own PDVSA bonds, you can't sell them. There's no broker dealer basically anywhere in america or any bank that you you know i mean theoretically you're allowed to sell them you're suddenly not allowed to buy them if you're an american but you need to sell them to a non-american and that and you'd need to find some kind of a broker dealer to broker that deal and there's no broker dealer who's going to touch that deal
2: yeah it will be interesting to see what happens because they're in the mb the jpm index and so at a certain point if there's no liquidity and you can't access them then in theory they should not be in the mb but if you're tracking the MB and you own them, you then can't sell them so it's it's a
0: conundrum it's tough and we don't no one knows how long this is going to last, although there's a reasonable expectation that it will probably last for as long as Maduro has power in Venezuela. Should
3: we explain a little bit why um the United States has slapped such heavy sanctions? Yes, on can you Venezuela? explain this? I mean I can try. I mean go ahead. Basically Madero uh was reelected for a second term. Most people think he basically stole the election. He's a real bad guy, bad leader a lot of Venezuelans are essentially starving. The country is in chaos. Um, this other guy, um, Guaido, has declared himself the leader. And the United States um, took the rare step, it seems like a rare step for the 2019, of saying, yeah, this new guy is the legit leader. Um, and then they place all these sanctions on Venezuela to essentially force Madero out.
0: And, and and severe. and part of my my thesis, which I'm going to try and flesh out a little bit tomorrow when I, when my newsletter comes out, is Axios Edge. Sign up, sign up. Yeah, okay. Axios.com. Wow. I can get a plug in <laughs> there. It's a good newsletter. There. It's a good newsletter. I'm going to try and I my my slightly inchoate thesis, which with any luck will be slightly more coate by tomorrow, is that the Americans are really in charge now, and one of the data points which supports this is that the US immediately recognized Guaido as the interim president of Venezuela within minutes of him swearing himself in. And then the rest of the world, I mean, with the large and important exceptions of Russia and China, but like Canada followed after about 25 minutes, like most of the rest of South America followed within like, you know, a few hours and even now the european union has done the same thing like the u.s led and everyone else followed
2: yeah this is actually really significant if you look at the power the u.s wields because of how involved global trade is with dollars that i mean if you're talking about most global trade is in dollars you know most reserves are held in dollars most debt that's issued globally is denominated in dollars. And if you look at what's happened since, you know, 2000, the U.S. has been much more aggressive in using this power. And now the Trump administration has actually been particularly aggressive about this. If you look at, you know, the number of names that have been added to the OFAC list in the first year of the Trump administration, than say the last year of the Obama administration, it's like an increase of like 30%. And I think this can be good and bad if the U.S. is using this power for good and in a consistent, reasonable way, then that's it's a, better than having them bomb a bunch of people. But on the other hand, if they're using this in an inconsistent way, like we saw, say, with Rusal, where they just aren't thinking through these sanctions – that is not ideal. Same thing if you look at Iran. Right okay, now, okay. Well, have, let's
0: take yeah. these one at a time because let's let's talk about Rusal, which is the big Russian aluminium company, yeah. uh, which is owned or was owned or is controlled anyway. The degree of like overlap is interesting, but by this guy called Oleg Deripaska. Um, so Oleg Deripaska is a classic oligarch kleptocrat, very close to Vladimir Putin, and. He winds up on this OFAC list now. This kind of makes sense, although it was the Trump administration who put in there. It was not the Obama administration who put in there. Um, and then a few, what about a week ago? He came, or he's still on the OFAC list, right. but, but, but Russel yes. is not. That somehow. Um, He managed to reduce his ownership of Rizal to a point at which Rizal is now off the OFAC list. And a bunch of Democrats, this is kind of fascinating to me, rather than sort of saying, like, what are you doing placing, you know, using all of this power that they kind of approved of putting him on the OFAC list and they're disapproving of taking him off it or taking his company off it. And
3: a handful of Republicans, too, are unhappy about this either. And I think when the U.S. first put the sanctions on Russia in the spring, it was they Congress did it overriding Trump's veto. Um, so the, the the administration has never really been that into this for some reason.
2: Well, the the Rusal sanctions. Though I think when they put those on, it seems as though people didn't understand what that would do to the aluminum market, or how you know who's really going to benefit from that Chinese, the Chinese companies because those are the big competitors. It, it didn't make any sense, and you know it didn't make any sense because they were never really actually implemented. They kept just just having extensions and extensions for when you had to divest if you held any if you held Rusal, you know, debt or equity, and same. They kept having extensions and extensions or Pasca to um, reduce his ownership in the company so they didn't these the sanctions were bizarre i mean they affected Rusol they weren't so allowed what, to make a long term contracts so what was but-
0: the the effect on the aluminum market.
2: Well, obviously initially when people thought that like it was a- they were actually going to be truly sanctioned, you saw a significant increase in the price of aluminum because you weren't going to have all this aluminum taken off the market. Now, you're obviously seeing a bit of a decline because there's all of this aluminum that Rusal has apparently been stockpiling that's going to be coming back on the market. It also had a big impact on the alumina market because one of the other mines that produced it had also gone gone down that year. So this had a real effect on the market. It also had an effect on supply chains. Now, it didn't have the like super damaging effect because they were never really Im- implemented. However, the uncertainty definitely had an effect.
0: And this brings us to the really big one, which is China. Um, another big thing we saw this week was a massive lawsuit that the Justice Department filed against Huawei, which is a uh, huge Chinese telecommunications company we've talked about in the past, um, and is closer to the Chinese government than even most Chinese companies are. It, it feels like an arm of the Chinese mm-hmm. government in many ways, and the Chinese government certainly is taking this lawsuit as an act of aggression on the part of the Americans. And again, like this is this is not part of trade talks officially, but unofficially, of course, it's part of the trade mm-hmm. talks because. The United States has a whole bunch of different mechanisms it can use to make life very miserable for foreign countries and companies, and some of um, and tariffs are just one of them. And what we're seeing is an increased willingness to use things like lawsuits and um, OFAC sanctions and stuff like that, which are complicated. Like, if you look at the pedibasis sanctions, there's like pages and pages of schedules of workarounds and who's allowed to do this and that with which companies, even PDVSA's own subsidiary in the United States, Citgo, is allowed to keep on operating. So it's, it's complicated to structure these things. But I have to say, given the general incompetence of the Trump administration at doing absolutely anything at all, they seem to be relatively sophisticated at the way they're building these things and and trying to make sure that they're targeting the sanctions in a way that it hurts the Maduro administration as much as possible and hurts international commerce as little as possible at the same time.
3: With the so it seems like they're using similar instruments in three different cases and that's sort of like totally they're very different as we just described. I mean, so I mean I think in Venezuela they're going to the the idea is pretty clear to punish this one government and force this guy out, but in Russia it's sort of unclear what the original intention was and the effects were bigger than were wanted. And now with China, I feel like maybe it's good that we that that the Justice Department just charged them with 13 counts of, you know, fraud and other
0: stuff.
3: Yeah. Yeah, But like, it's not clear to me that this is going to be effective or not yet. And like what how China is going to retaliate is not clear. It just seems like a more complicated game. I
2: I agree. I think that if you're looking at the China situation, it's a lot more complicated. Mm -hmm. And I think it does call into question whether at a certain point, doing this could become counterproductive for the U.S., when you're actually going to be encouraging countries to find workarounds and also to incentivize them to think about a world beyond dollar dominance. Now, I realize that seems absurd right now because there just are no other alternatives. (laughs) Like, it's certainly not going to be the euro, obviously not going to be the renminbi. Like, basically, everybody else sucks more than we do. So it's going to continue to be the dollar for a long time. But, you know, as I was mentioning a little bit earlier, you know, even this week, you had um, Europe announced that they're kind of structuring a workaround around the Iranian sanctions. Now, it's pretty limited, but this is another example of other countries kind of banding together saying we don't agree with what the U.S. is doing and trying to find a way around it. Although, and the-
0: yeah, I mean, I, th- I think that, as you say, it's limited. And I think the U.S. is okay with that. I think this is actually the reason why previous administrations didn't pull these kind of stunts is precisely because they were worried about long-term dollar dominance and that kind of stuff, and they wanted to protect that dominance. Um, But the way they protected it was basically by never using it. And what the Trump administration has absolutely demonstrated is, especially in the realm of tariffs, is that it's willing to hurt itself in the Furtherance of its international trade and foreign policy goals. The if you know they're saying we will slap a bunch of tariffs on Chinese goods. They've done that. They've already slapped tariffs on like fifty billion dollars worth of 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 Chinese goods, and that hurts a bunch of American importers. It hurts a bunch of American consumers. And they're like, yeah, it hurts us, but we're going to do it anyway. And the rational and and that changes the whole game theory of trade negotiations. And similarly with these with these sanctions. You know, yes, people are like, yeah, you are probably hurting your long-term hegemony by doing this kind of thing. But if you're going to do this and you have a credible threat because we believe that you will do it, um, then that actually does force us to come to the table and make concessions.
3: I feel like that's not going to – it's just not clear yet with China whether that strategy of raising tariffs to get them to make concessions is going to work, especially because – the us is being so uh unilateral like they they're going alone they could they could have brought in others to put pressure on china and maybe in the end china won't be the tariffs aren't even really the problem and they're i i just don't see like i see with venezuela it's very clear that the us went in kind of on its own and was the first responder and then people came in other countries came in behind them but but on china it's sort of like isolated itself in trying to negotiate with this like major economic power. Well, I mean, it and hasn't
0: like what I mean, we saw an interesting thing with the Canadian ambassador to China when he was just a tiny little bit trying to distance himself from the Americans and immediately got fired yeah. by <laughs> Justin Trudeau for doing so.
2: Well, and I was just going to say I I think part of the issue with China and as I said with Russia as well, is just the the inconsistency of U.S. policy, I don't think that is a good look long term. I don't think that is going to benefit the country long term. And I agree with you, Felix, that I don't think this administration cares, but I think maybe the rest of the country should care in terms of, you know, the dollar is the most powerful thing we have. And we're we're basically altering a lot of you know norms of foreign policy and the idea that, you know, we're saying a company like ZTE, they violate sanctions on Iran. You have, you know, Trump saying that Iran's the worst thing in the world, but them being like... Well, but if China buys some more soybeans, then ZTE is okay. Like, this is so inconsistent and it makes it so other countries don't really know how to deal with us.
3: They're injecting politics into places where it's becoming, I think, too, it's too messy. They're like, so John Mulaney, the comedian, he has um, a whole bit based on uh, comparing Trump to if a horse was loose in a hospital. It's just total chaos monkey. There's no consistency in the policy. And it's, it's sort of like he's there. There's like chaos agent going around the world and to say like it's effective is like yeah maybe one time it's effective here but most of the time
2: it's not effective and it may be effective in china in the short term i think it probably will be but in the long term i mean like they're going to be playing the long game they know that trump is not going to last forever
0: so (laughs) just to just to sort of wind this up uh i just need to ask both of you do we believe that the huawei lawsuit was politically motivated and basically came from the white house
2: well, so on the one hand, I'm sure it's con- – I mean, I-, I think you can't in any way divorce this from our kind of ongoing issue with China. But if you actually look at the lawsuit and, like, read the emails, it's pretty clear that these were just, like, massive violations. It was, no, I mean, it's absolutely
0: clear that the Justice Department has been doing a huge amount of work investigating Huawei for many years, and they have a huge amount of evidence um, – by that very token, since they've clearly had a bunch of evidence for, for many years, you know, it does kind of seem mildly coincidental, at the very least, that they suddenly drop this lawsuit oh. now. Oh,
2: for of sure, of course, it's political. I don't think there's any doubt there. Yeah, but I think I think two things can be true at the same time. It can yeah. be political, and there can still be some valid concerns. There. Oh,
0: it's it's a valid lawsuit, that's for sure.
3: Subject to credit approval. Terms apply.
0: So let's talk about the Federal Reserve. Uh, last year, which wasn't all that long ago, it was only a month ago, the Fed was on a steady pace of raising interest rates, while at the same time declaring that it was being data dependent about the whole thing, and that if the data changed, then it would change. And then this year, at its very first meeting of the year, they basically stopped saying that they were on a steady part of. Raising interest rates, and everyone jeered because they decided that the rate hike cycle might well have come to an end. And so, my question is what data are they looking at? Because I can't see any data. We just had an amazingly strong jobs report. Um, especially considering the shutdown, what what is this data that has brought this hiking cycle to an end? We're
2: not seeing the same increase in inflation. We are seeing soft corporate earnings. We're seeing slowed growth. China, that's the biggest one people are talking about. You're also seeing this in Europe, Germany in particular, also in Italy. You.
0: Oh, we should mention that Italy is now in recession. Yes.
2: Ooh and then we now are going to have china starting to feel moving forward actual effects of these this you know trade war so i think that it's not really that surprising and then on top of that you also had all the volatility we saw at the end of december so i think the in fed... the
0: stock market yes yes but, and but and, I... and so uh, which is interesting i think i think it's indicative it's the fed shouldn't stop hiking rates just because the stock market goes crazy but by the same token if the stock market declines do represent a genuine pessimism about the future course of earnings and growth. Then they should take that reasonably seriously.
3: Yeah, and there the are all the other um, indicators that Anna just mentioned. It makes sense to me that they would stop raising rates.
0: Plus, so do you think oh, they're pausing? Stopped? I mean, pausing. What's the next? What's the next move?
2: Is they're it up also or down? doing.
3: Um, should we also talk about the quantitative tightening
2: that they're also doing? Yeah, although I, yeah, it's, uh, then, I no, be. actually, I think the balance, I mean, no, actually, the balance sheet is important. It's, it's interesting it's important because people are talking about it a lot, although I think people are overestimating the effect of the balance sheet just allowing these, this debt to roll off, which is essentially now, and I think the reason I actually think, though, this is important is because... Should we explain of...
3: what quantitative tightening is before well, quantitative we quantitative easing
2: in. is when you're buying bonds, you're increasing the assets on the Fed's balance sheet. Quantitative tightening is the opposite. And
3: quantitative easing was begin- begun during the Great Recession to sort of... Ba- basically, what
0: happened was the Fed cut rates all the way to zero, and then mm-hmm. they wanted to keep on cutting, but you can't cut below zero mm-hmm. for various reasons. And so they invented this thing called quantitative easing, which had the same effect in terms of monetary policy as yeah. a rate Cut um, and, and it affected long term rates, and so which are the important ones, and so now they have to unwind that, and that unwind is called quantitative tightening, and what. Jay Powell has been trying very aggressively to say is, look, this is just a technocratic unwind. It's not really monetary monetary policy at all. And the markets are like, pull mm. the other one. This mm-hmm. is monetary policy. If it was monetary policy on the way down, it's monetary policy on the way back up.
2: Right. What is less significant is actually than the size of the balance sheet, because they, although, yes, the balance sheet will be getting smaller, it's not going to go to where it was before the crisis. But what is interesting is that they're planning to allow a lot of the to get rid of a lot of the and the mortgage backed securities because they want to have actually like even like less risky assets in the balance sheet and also to shorten the maturity and i think that long term could potentially have a little bit of a bigger impact on what on rates but not not that it's not something we'll necessarily see anytime soon and i think it's going to be such a gradual process that i don't think you're going to see some like massive market moves but i do think it's the fed getting back to more normal policy
0: so i mean just continuing the theme of white house throwing its weight around and getting what it wants Ah. um, you know like trump was extremely aggressive saying stop raising rates and then they stopped raising rates Mm. i mean there's a there's you know correlation there is there causation
2: i no. i actually think trump's comments make it harder for the fed to actually pull back but they did but they did because they had to (laughs) it wouldn't have made any sense to continue to hike with what we're currently seeing i think if we start to if you started to see inflation picking up a little bit if all of a sudden the trade war like ended and you had a better growth report then i think they would start tightening again this is so if um so italy's in a recession
3: so the signs are not great for us so if we do go into a downturn the fact that the fed has already stopped raising rates means that the fed has less leeway to help out
2: not necessarily i mean it's yes on the one hand you you part of wanting to Increase rates is to give yourself a little bit of, uh, like kind of wiggle room. So, Mm -hmm. like, if you need to reduce, but having said that, like, right now it appears that we're basically still somewhat stimulating the economy, but no one really knows. Nobody really knows where the neutral rate is. A lot of people kind of think about a lot of our old ideas about the relationship between inflation and unemployment has just changed. And so, I don't think it's as simple as saying, like, oh, if rates are still relatively low going into like a recession, then the Fed can't do anything. Well, I, I mean, it can do what it did the last time, basically go to zero and then buy bonds again. Yeah. It's, and also not every recession is the great recession. I think there's a sense that like if this cycle ends and we go, we start to slow like it will. And, and then if we end up in a recession, it doesn't have to be the end of the world. Right.
0: I think I think this is part That's of the, the, the s- sort of, Trauma of the American public when they hear the word recession is they're like, oh, I remember what a recession is. A recession is what we had in two thousand nine. That's not what a recession is. A recession is what you had in like two thousand one, and no one really remembers that. We are not talking about a global financial crisis here. We're just talking about the economy, you know, slowing down and and shrinking a little bit before bouncing back. It's entirely natural and in the economy, and the Fed will cut rates when it happens, and life will go on.
1: Okay. <laughs> Hello, I'm Immy Harper. On the Slow news Newscast from Tortoise, I tell the story of how a Hong Kong billionaire was silenced.
0: I got bombs thrown into my house. I got people came here, at my computer, and I, I got people fractured me. I got this and that, but I'm
1: safe and what it reveals about the freedoms Hong Kong no longer enjoys. Listen to Hong Kong's rebel billionaire on the slow newscast wherever you get your podcasts.
0: So let's talk about PG&E. This is a really interesting one. This is the big utility in California, which has now filed for bankruptcy. The reason it has filed back for bankruptcy is fascinating because normally you file for bankruptcy when you bankrupt you well when you're <laughs> insolvent when your liabilities exceed your assets and it's not insolvent but it kind of thinks that it probably will be um, on the grounds that there will be a huge number of claims against it from people who lost their homes in the campfire and other big wildfires last summer and so the question then becomes is this kind of a skeevy move on the part of PG&E to basically get out from the inevitable lawsuits and claims and say, oh, we, we can't pay them because we're in bankruptcy? Or is this like a sensible way of trying to get out in front of those claims and punt the whole thing to a bankruptcy court who is probably better placed to make those judgments about who gets money and who doesn't?
2: think pretty certainly the latter. I mean, you you do have PG&E and look, this is not a company that's behaved particularly well <laughs> over the past, you know, 15-20 years, but having said that, currently they are facing a situation where if they although they are not insolvent now, they very quickly could become insolvent and it doesn't make any sense for them to behave as though that's not the case because that you can't run a business like that. And it makes far more sense for them to go into bankruptcy and have to renegotiate a lot of their liabilities, their debt, their long-term contracts. Yes, there are going to be people who lose from that. Certainly, I, I think a lot of like solar and wind farms could actually potentially lose from this because they had established rates at a higher rate and they're going to be able to probably lower that. But it's also the reality of utility policy in California, when you have a law that says that a company is liable if their equipment is involved, even if they weren't negligent, you're going to keep running into this problem, especially as climate change continues. It does seem a little skeevy,
3: though. I mean, this like Anna just said, this company doesn't have a great track record. It just had to pay like a record uh, fine for an explosion in California that it was responsible for. Um, in bankruptcy, like you just said, it'll get to re- renegotiate prices. And customers in California might be the ones who wind up paying for this bankruptcy well, through higher electric bills. One way or another,
0: bills. customers are going to wind up paying.
3: Um, and. I guess bigger picture, this seems like one of the first, um, I read somewhere, one of the first financial catastrophes of, of climate change, essentially. And I feel like bankruptcy courts isn't where we should resolve these kinds of issues. There should be, I don't know what the answer is, but I, it no, should but be I agree. something outside I think of bankruptcy, the courtroom.
0: Bankruptcy, especially for utilities, is an incredibly convoluted and involved and expensive and time-consuming process. This is going to cost millions and millions of dollars. It's going to take years And it's going to end up with a solution where the main um, benefit for PG&E is they can just say, well, it wasn't us who made these decisions. It was someone else and point to a bankruptcy judge. And at some point, I feel like you do actually need to just own this. And, And this seems... To me, like, they just rushed into this a little bit too gleefully that they had these contracts with the wind and solar companies that they wanted to renegotiate and they couldn't get out from under. They're like, oh, now we can. Um, they have a whole bunch of employees who have, like, pension funds and and various other things which will fall under the bankruptcy regime. And, you know, this is a great opportunity for them to, like, shove their employees a little bit as well. Also, by the way, the employees, for various reasons have a bunch of PG&E stock in their 401k, so that's all, like, getting wiped out or certainly going down a lot. Um And in general, this seems like a way for PG&E to sort of say, hey, we get to absolve ourselves of any um decision-making... uh What's the word? Like, responsibilities here and come out smelling clean and not really have to take the blame for all of the harm that we're going to impose on the solar companies and the wind companies and the employees and even the homeowners. They're not really trying to make it right. They're just washing their hands of it. I
2: I disagree with that a little bit because – Number one, if I'm a company, currently my assets exceed my liabilities by $20 billion. I'm facing $30 billion of additional liabilities. What exactly am I supposed to do? And especially because right now what a lot of courts and people want PG&E to do is make the system safer. That costs money. How are they supposed to do that? How are they supposed to invest in that? I'm not exactly sure what the alternative is. So the
0: alternative is I think you actually – Enter into constructive discussions with the state of California. That's
3: what I think. But um, they're already doing. I think this is uh, this is a really it's a it's a red flashing sign. Like states, the state governments and federal governments have to deal with the realities of climate change, and the way to deal with those realities is not by going to bankruptcy court. It's by having some kind of like visionary discussion and planning and policies that would make it possible for you know uh, Californians to have electricity and for the state to actually wrestle with climate change and and what needs to happen going forward. And I feel like going to bankruptcy court is sort of like an abdication of all those responsibilities on on the, the part of the utility and California itself.
0: Californian utilities have always wound up Kind of in all manner of nasty situations from Orange county and enron and pg e 's last bankruptcy, which wasn 't all that long ago, and then pg e 's latest like the the not to mention the drought the fires like it's it 's not a great state to live in as a customer of a utility, and what the the politically expedient solution seems to have been to just blame the utility companies for everything and force them to pay for everything um, which is which doesn't really work when you get catastrophes of this kind of magnitude.
3: My question is, and maybe I'm just a crazy kind of communist lady, but why is a public utility private anyway? Like, it doesn't seem like a good idea.
2: No, I mean, okay, this I actually will push back on because there's actually like, there are many studies, I think Slate actually published a piece a while ago, uh, comparing public and private utilities. And Mm -hmm. the idea that like public utilities are going to have keep prices lower, or they're not. There is no evidence. No, for no, that. we're not but talking not about prices. Of, yeah. We're talking exactly about this. And kind actually, of in terms of safety, also not. If anything, actually a little bit less. Now, having said that, private utilities also aren't any more efficient, which you think they would be. So there, there's just not a tremendous amount of difference. No, However, no, but, but, but
0: Anna, the the whole point here is not like looking at how they operate on a day to day basis or in terms of prices. We're exactly talking about aligning the interests of the state, literally the state of California, the interests of the people of California, and the interests of the energy company in California, so that all of these different moving parts can work together in a context of increasingly catastrophic consequences of climate change. I agree. And and if you want all of those parts to work efficiently together, it helps if they're all part of the same entity. And it doesn't help if you wind up in the highly adversarial context of a bankruptcy. Court.
2: I, I disagree. You're talking about heavily regulated utilities. They also they're constantly working with the government. They, they have a set profit rate. That's how regulating utilities works. And actually, right now, like, if you look at a lot of legislatures in California they'll say like we don't want to take on this Sacramento says we don't want to take on this they don't have the capacity to like run this grid i mean like the actual people that were saying you're saying you want to give this problem to are saying we don't want this so i agree with you that the current system is unsustainable you simply cannot have like status quo remain you are going to have to change things i've heard of like potentially having an industry wide like insurance fund that all of these companies are going to have to put into so that you have funds that you can go to if you have these type of catastrophic issues and also there are going to have to be people are going to have to think about like how can you try to reduce this happening in the future but i just don't think if you look at the reality of simply saying well we'll just give it to the government and that'll make everything better that doesn't seem like it would work at all here. I'm just saying there's a
3: PG&E is not the gap, you know, just selling pants and it can go bankrupt. Like PGE is delivering a public good and like the state of California has a responsibility to its citizens to deliver the public good. And so it's interesting that it's.
2: That we've abdicated that to the private sector, and now it's not it's abdicating kind of- though. it's it's as I said, like when you're talking about a regulated industry, this isn't the gap. Like this is is very, very different. It's just so highly controlled. So I think what you're talking about is already happening. What is currently happening is not perfect, and I think that things do need to change, But I don't think the answer is ok. So yeah. what's
0: the answer? What needs to change?
2: Well, I mean, as I've said, I think the kind of insurance fund issue is an idea. I think that they are going to have to consider how how rates are set and some of these laws that put so much of the liabilities on the companies themselves. But then on the other hand, it's complicated, again, because obviously if you don't put the liabilities on the companies, then they are just going to fall to the government in terms of when people do lose their homes. So then just trying to think of like, like, how can we actually, like what are the actual steps we can do to reduce the likelihood of this happening? And partly that's hard because partly it's like, let's cut down a lot of trees in California, which would be part of it. Could you put more power lines underground? Yes, that's going to be extraordinarily expensive. There are no easy solutions here. And the government and this utility company are going to have to work together closely. But the utility company is not going to be able to do that if it's basically it constantly in fear of being bankrupt like it well, has it, to but that's be that's the whole point it is now company.
0: it is now going to be in bankruptcy for the foreseeable future for the next few years which is not the best place to be if you want to try and implement one of these big long-term structural solutions i i just feel like there are ways of reorganizing the system here which will work over the long term and i just don't believe that the narrow interests of creditors fighting each other in bankruptcy court are the best way to arrive at that solution.
4: This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.
0: Let's have a numbers round. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Sure. Do you have a number, Emily?
3: Yeah, I have a number. What's the number?
0: <laughs> Seems like a very aggressive
3: number. <laughs> a number? Um, 77%. Ooh. Yeah. Okay. That's – um. Bernie Sanders proposal this week um, to uh, raise the estate tax, basically, and um, um, on estates that are over a billion dollars, he wants to charge a 77% death tax. Remember, people used to call it the death tax. And he's just the latest um, presidential candidate on the Democratic side to propose a new wealth tax. And
0: I, I think- the Estate
3: taxes and wealth
2: taxes are not actually- state well, well, they it's, are. They're, it's they're both the wealth, taxes on It's a, wealth. a tax on the wealth of, of no, someone's estate. But they're different uh, things. I mean, an estate tax is something that – but if someone dies, then the person who's inheriting it has to pay – a wealth tax as you have other people. I'm just saying those are actually different things. But okay. it's a tax on wealth.
0: Anna, there are lots <laughs> yes, of different, different types. It's a different There type, are lots of but... different types of wealth tax. Um, <laughs> property taxes are the most common one. Um, inheritance taxes are the second most common one. The kind of Elizabeth Warren proposal of an annual wealth tax on all of Something your global yes. wealth is one which does not yet exist, but which might. But they're all different types. They're all kinds of wealth tax. And there is definitely a move now in the wake of this Warren proposal to take another look at inheritance tax as a way of... um, Basically, backdoor, low-key implementing a wealth tax without having to go through all of the practical difficulties involved in trying to do something which is annual. Yeah,
3: it's interesting because it's a mechanism that already exists. We already have um, an inheritance tax. So Sanders' proposal is actually much more practical, if you ask me, than than Warren's because there's no new mechanism to implement. We just raise the, you know, we lower the um, threshold and we raise the percentage. So it's kind of easy peasy. I guess um, Jeff if Jeff Bezos died today, which imagine he won't, I'm sure, he would then owe uh, his estate
2: would pay 101 billion dollars.
0: Or maybe the government would become a major shareholder in Amazon. <laughs> um Anna.
2: So, my number is 17. That is the age difference between the two quarterbacks playing in the Super Bowl this week, which I just think is legitimately kind of interesting and cool that uh so you have uh, obviously Tom Brady and Jared Goff Tom Brady is you know 17 years older when he played in his first super bowl Goff was 7 like i, I think that's kind of impressive he's old <laughs> he's very old
0: i i, I can weigh in on this time? because i'm a complete expert on all things sports ball and i totally understand what this number means i have <laughs> no idea um
3: the super bowls this weekend did you know that it's tomorrow on Sunday,
0: I'm. I will be. I will be um, in a windowless theater watching an eight-hour play. <laughs>
4: <laughs>
0: um, two billion. That's my number. That's a little hint of what we're going to be talking about on Slate Plus this week. Um, $2 is the number of people who use a Facebook service that's either Facebook itself or Instagram or WhatsApp every day on a daily basis, which is it came out in their latest quarterly earnings, which were spectacular and the stock went up. We are going to have a Slate Plus segment about why the stock went down before the stock went up. There is a whole scandal about Facebook... Um, abusing its enterprise access to the Apple App Store. Um, That's going to be in plus, but 2 billion is a hell of a lot of people to use your services every single day. And it does kind of bespeak the power of Facebook and why it might want to be broken up. On which point, I think we shall wrap up the main part of Slate Money because we want to Rush along to the whole question in Slate Plus of whether Facebook's most effective regulator is now Apple. Um, Thank you for listening. Thank you for keeping the emails coming on SlateMoney at Slate.com. Thank you to Max Jacobs for producing. And we will talk to you next week on Slate Money.